and welcome back to the Game Pit. I'm Sean, this is episode 70, and we're here, we're in Essen fever time! It's Ronan here, this is the first of our Spiel 2016 treasure hunts. We are going to be looking at 12 games which are going to be coming out of Spiel just under three weeks' time, Sean. Full excitement going on. We haven't played these games. We're just looking at the rules, the components, looking at what is available, if indeed anything, and giving our speculation on whether these releases are going to be a treasure. That means something we'll be happy to add to our collection, or a trap, which means, to varying degrees, for some reason or other, we're not going to be picking them up. Although happy to give them a play, and anything that comes in as a trap... We'll get a second chance if we possibly can. That's it, exactly. And uh, we are, u- well, I would say usually wrong, Ronan, but we have a track record of being quite wrong about games. It's, it's wild speculation, that's all it is, but it's fun. And I guess what I, th- I think people listen to these episodes a lot because it just echoes what other people who are going along to the fair or following it or trying to work out what to buy are doing because all you're doing is reading rules looking at the information out there and trying to make an informed decision which is very very difficult so hopefully this will be some sort of a guide to you Mm, no promises that we're actually any good at this (laughs) okay before we crack on into our first 12 games that we're looking forward to we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Please go there for gaming podcasts of a fabulous quality. If you want to download our episodes, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, Podbean. Okay, time to crack on with those Essen games. Ronan is going to lead us in with Italian Renaissance game, possibly? Maybe. Lorenzo il Magnifico, Sean. This is coming from Simon and Cranio Games. One to two hours. I'm going to say maybe towards the the longer part of that scale. Two to four players. It's going for 50 euro Essen. The designers are Flaminia Brassini. He designed Egizia and Leonardo da Vinci. Virginio Gigli, who also did Egizia, Leonardo da Vinci, Grand Austria Hotel, Comunai, Simone Luciani, who also had a hand in Grand Austria Hotel, Marco Polo, Zolkin, Council of Four. There is some heavyweights of Italian design behind Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Players play as a family in Renaissance Florence. You start off with four workers. Three of them have got a colour and one's neutral. They are going to have a strength each round over six rounds. And there's a dice which is rolled for each of the colours. And that tells you the strength of them. Although your no-colour worker is always going to have a strength of zero. You can use these workers onto the board to carry out various actions. You can add to their strength using any servants you've been able to collect, which is one of the resources in the game. And those six rounds are going to be split up into three periods of two rounds each. So what are you doing with these workers? Well, there are various areas on the board, as you can imagine. The most of the board is taken up by four towers. Beginning of each round, four cards will be dealt to each of these towers in a one, three, five and seven strength space. So that's how strong your worker has to be to go in there and take that particular card. The four types of cards really generate what you're trying to do in the game to build up the strength of your family. There are territories. Now, they're going to cost you military strength, or you must have military strength to take them. 
And then they're going to provide you with resources and victory points if you ever trigger a harvest during the round, which you can do with one of your workers. There are buildings. They will cost you resources, which you can get from your territories, and they will provide you with various different effects if you ever trigger a production during your round. So harvest for territories, production for buildings. There are also characters, which will cost you money, which you can earn from buildings and what have you. They are pretty much always going to boost the other actions you can take around the board and provide you again with victory points. And there are business ventures. They cost either resources or there could be a military cost rather than just having to have military and they will provide you with end game victory points. When you take these cards, they tend to have an immediate effect and then a permanent effect when you trigger whatever it may be, having to harvest that production, using the action they're linked to, however it is. For those towers, you're going to have to take a balance of cards because you can't go three times the same tower. You can only go twice by using your neutral color worker. Every time someone tries to go in, when someone else would have been in there, it's going to cost you money. So they're trying to get you to spread out and go down different routes. Like I say, you can trigger harvest or production with your worker to run those territories or buildings. There's other little bits on the board. There's a market which gives a little bit of income that can help you out of a hole. There's the council palace. Now, that triggers turn order, as you can tell, because going into a tower costs money. There's going to be easier to get the cards which you need a lower strength worker for so turn order i think is going to be very important in this also a tiny little bonus now the last kind of big thing in the game is at the end of the second fourth and sixth rounds the final rounds there's going to be a vatican report and as well as the other things i've mentioned with regards to resources and money and military you also can get faith points and during this vatican report every second round you can pay faith points which is going to give you a little bonus or you get excommunicated and that will give you a permanent malice <laughs> penalty on what you're doing for the rest of the game so that's just something else to consider and think about sean lorenzo il magnifico a medium heavyish weight euro coming from simon who have been branching out and this italian design team any thoughts start off with that little dice mechanism i really like the look of it i think that's going to provide some really interesting choices i kind of liken this a little bit ronan to signori and grand austria hotel there's elements of both of them sort of mashed together you've got that dice mechanic of signori and sending a family out to do stuff grand austria hotel you've got your own board you've got the penalty track every other round they're the two that i think it's most like in my head anyway there, I think there's also a little bit of Marco. Polo! Marco. Polo. <laughs> in there as well. From Simone Luciani. I, I can feel that with the using the dice of different strengths to trigger things off. It looks like it's a real rush to get things done. Uh, you're not going to have enough time. It's from that body of work from these guys who have come up with so many interesting games before, which is really why it caught my eye initially. Yeah, and also, Ron, there seems to be a, there's a lot of resources going on. You've got some money, wood, stone, you've got the servants. I think there's a lot to sort of keep in your mind and try and balance those. That's that's kind of the Marco Polo thing for me, I think, of getting in these various resources and getting rid of them again in order to get you points. But small amounts of each. You're not getting 50 wood to spend. You're getting two or three, and then you're targeting what you want to use that for to help you generate going forward. Yeah, how do you think about the theme of this game? It looks to me like it's quite dry, quite abstract. Yeah, exactly. The what, did you say? Exactly, yes. There isn't really any. I, <laughs> I think it's almost completely abstract for me. Yeah, for sure. I, theme, psh, whatever. Okay, Ronan, 
I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say that this one is a treasure. All the working parts look like they make sense. They do what you need to do. It is a balancing act. It is quite a deep game. So there is going to be a little bit of AP, but I think it's good enough to be a treasure. Definite treasure for me. You know that Rachel is a big fan of Grand Austria Hotel and Marco Polo and Zolkin. I'm almost certain she's going to love it. So it's going to get loads of plays in this house. This will come to me. It will be mine definite definite treasure lorenzo il magnifico sean lead us onwards okay i'm going into dreams and shadows ronan you stick to them i am this of dreams and shadows is a self-published game designed by gordon alford plays two to six players and it's coming in at a price point of 40 euros for spiel what is it it is a fantasy co-op adventure with some role-playing elements, with players becoming champions, trying to save their realm from otherworldly creatures. And also there's a main villain who is a being of myth and legend, much like Ronan. The game is basically all about travelling across a map, gathering resources, fighting monsters and completing scenarios. All your scenarios are read by another player, which gives you that role-playing element because they're going to give you choices to take in those scenarios. Not, the rulebook isn't very big for this at all. There's not much more to it. Ronan, what did you think of Dreams and Shadows? I think it's ambitious for a first-time designer to take this on and self-publish because he's gone for a wide scope. He's trying to create a full story going on here. He's got a, a big story background in role-playing games and playing and he's going to take those into a more accessible market however to start with the amount of lore in his website and the artwork he's been able to produce is really impressive sean it is as you like to say striking it really is when you think self-published you're going to think oh here we go okay you got we're going to forgive them the artwork and the production values from afar because they're self-published you look at this and you think wow that looks like it's coming out of a professional company. It's, it's well realised. I think we mentioned in the conversation before, there's a couple of the cards or the, the artwork that you think, oh, actually, that doesn't quite meet the standard of the others. But in general, it's very, very impressive. But I will say that where the self-published thing comes in is the rule book is not that great. It's kind of back to front and how it does things, gives you all the rules, and then all the components and ideas of the game are explained at towards the end of it. It definitely needs an edit, just not just to restructure it, to remove the wordiness. You know, don't write in prose, don't write in paragraphs when you're doing a manual. We want bullet points, we want it sharp, we want to pick out what we need to know. It's not quite written in the right way, I would say. And the other thing I'll say where it comes through is there's lots of iconography in the game. And they're all small and they're all very similar. They're all light blue with some sort of a white shape in there. It's not that easy to see. And I think that's a misstep. The iconography needs to be sorted out. And what surprised me, Ronan, is that there's loads of these role-playing style stats for each characters and how you build them up. And that was a concern. Are all of those going to tie in and be sort of smooth within the game? But despite all those stats... The rulebook's tiny, like there's not a lot of information in that rulebook. And I almost sort of was expecting another five or six pages with all those stats involved. And it just, just isn't there. I think that's a big bonus though, mate, because he's removed that from getting you involved in the story. Like the board is very simple. You travel around and you encounter things. He's kind of minimized everything. It's got that 
Elder Char Arkham thing off. If you're in a certain color space, you draw that card and that's what you encounter. He's structured it somewhat with sort of epic encounters and only in the second half you come across the big baddie. I think that's definitely a deliberate attempt to say, look, don't worry too much about all these loads and loads and loads of rules. Anything you need to know is going to be on the cards. Enjoy the experience. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the way I hope it's gone. But I just, I'm still just a little bit worried that all of those stats are there, and maybe you'll get to a point where something's not in the rule book or is not very clear in the rule book. I think the last thing I'll say is, uh, and it is a, a plus and a minus going on here. I think we've we've both seen positives and negatives in this. The combat carries on going until it's resolved, basically, and it's not a one-and-done thing. It goes through rounds, and there's a bit of backwards and forwards. If you're not involved in that combat, how interested are you going to be? Is there a chance that the game breaks into lengthy combats around the table while the rest of the people are doing nothing? But on the flip side of that, the game is only 10 turns in total, and it doesn't seem to be that a turn takes that long. So is it another one of those games where you're kind of racing through, not really exploring and realising the world that you're in? I, again, I think the explosion is all in the cards. It's not... Yeah. It all is going to come down to how good those cards are, how interesting are their real choices in there. Off Dreams and Shadows, I think it looks fun. I think I'd really like to try it, but I'm going to have to make it a trap because... I'm not sure it's that replayable, and if it is successful, I'd love to see it picked up and polished, and maybe given a few more scenarios and, and brought, you know that little bit extra to it. But for a self-published title, which I usually run away from, it looks good for that, but I'm not going to get it. Well, for me, there's quite a few things niggling at me about this. I, I, I am worried about the short rule book. I am worried about a lot of information crammed into not a lot of rules. But I think the designer's passion, go on the website for this game and you read about the passion and his journey and what his background is. He's done a lot of computer games that around this sort of area that he's involved in a lot. And I'm going to give him a pass this time. I'm going to say it's a treasure, a slight treasure. I'll need to play it before I buy it. I'm definitely going to give it a go. I'm going to say treasure for Of Dreams and Shadows. Okay, this is definitely not a self-published one. This is Adrenaline from Czech Games Editions. It's for three to five players, 45 minutes in length from Philip Neduk, the designer of Goblins, Inc. This is a zero-luck, first-person shooter, deathmatch board game. It's all about having three to five dudes on a map who are going to be able to do two or three actions on their turn. They're going to be able to move, they're going to be able to shoot at people around them, or they're going to be able to grab guns or ammo from the floor. Your weapons always hit whenever you try and shoot at someone. You do need to collect cubes to either pay for new weapons that you pick up, which will be situation dependent. There's loads and loads of weapons in the game. Some of them have got certain ranges, some of them can hit everyone in a distant room some will be more effective if there's someone in the same space with you or something like that so sometimes you want to throw your weapon away to pick up a new one whenever you hit someone however much damage you do to them you put tokens of your color on their health track now everyone has 11 hit points when that person dies firstly they respawn immediately so they're not out of the game but secondly Everyone else is going to score according to who did the most damage. So the first time they die, whoever did the most damage is going to get 8 points, and then 4, 2, 1, 
in order if you've done damage to them. The second time that person dies, though, that number of points reduces to six, four, two, and one, and so on. So uh, no one's really going to die more than three times in the game. You set a limit. The maximum is eight total kills. The game's over. Although to start with, they suggest playing with five total kills. That, that will kind of get you going and get the idea that it's a quick bosh, hit people, get going, light, funny game. If you overkill someone, do loads of damage, they get to hit you back. You can put marks on people that does extra damage next time you shoot at them. And you're kind of having this vying situation of, I want you to die with my most damage on, but there's no point in me doing 10 of your 11 damage because who else is going to kill you then? I, I want to do enough that other people want to come in and help me kill you. And if you're running around with one damage left and no one else shoots you, well then you're never going to die and I'm not going to get my points. As a person takes damage, this is where the name comes in, they get adrenaline powers, which means, for example, they can move and grab on their turn. That's the game. It's a simple light on a small map, run around, shoot at each other, and try and judge it that you're getting as many points for as few shots as possible. Sean, have you got any thoughts on adrenaline? I came into this one really not liking it at all. I didn't like the looks of it at all. The graphics just looked basic and they didn't stand out of the crowd at all for me. And I didn't really like the idea of a first person shooter turned into a board game. Now, having looked into it a little bit more and I did see it at the UK Games Expo being demoed. I didn't play it myself, but people seem to be having a lot of fun with it. And there was good reports coming out of the expo. There's a few things I do like about it, Ron. I like you've got this modular board that's going to add some longevity. And one of the main things I like is the no elimination. So when you die, you respawn and you go again. I always like games that just keep you involved all the time. You're definitely going to be involved all the time, Sean. And that is very much the selling point of it. You're all on top of each other. You've just got this choice of two or three actions every turn. And it's much more... Not are you going to do damage, not are you setting yourself up to set a trap for someone or being more strategic. It's much more who are you going to hit, how are you going to hit them? And do you want to go and get a different weapon to do it this turn? Because actually everywhere you stand, there's something to pick up. There's either weapons or ammo. Tight, small map. I do like the modular aspects of it. That could change it up a little bit. But definitely they're focusing on more an arcade style of first person shooter as opposed to something a bit more realistic and deep. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned about the, your points value to the other person going down every time you're hit and you actually get better, I think that's going to balance it out for new players because especially you sharks down at London on board, uh, you, <laughs> if, if a new player came into this, you've had a bit of experience, that person would be like absolute cannon fodder. Why you? Why you got to be like why that? Have why have you, you got to be, be like, like that? that? Hey, he ain't like that. He ain't like that because they're worth less points after the first time they die. We're not stupid. <laughs> We're just mean. Yeah, and that's the whole idea of the adrenaline thing that you can't pick on anyone too much, and it, it is much more of a free-for-all. Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of upgrades going around, which everyone likes an upgrade. Yeah, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Chaotic, nonsense fun. I don't know how much strategy or even tactics you're going to employ in this with bullets flying everywhere, especially in the higher player counts. Not sure it works for two, though. Yeah, so if you're playing with two or three players, they even say themselves, there's bots that you can put in which will bring more action into it. I think they're admitting two to three doesn't really work that well. Fair enough. Right, uh, Roden. I am not going to buy this because of that very reason. 
but I think it sounds like a lot of fun. I like that they've tried to balance it out. I like that there's lots of things that you can add into this game and that it's going to change every time you play it. So I'm going to say it's a cheeky little treasure. Oh, a cheeky little one. Cheeky one. Do you know what the secret to a happy life is, Sean? Go on, Ronan. Reducing expectations. If people expect you to be a disappointment, no matter how bad you are, generally they'll be quite happy with you. My problem is, when I heard that there was a first-person shooter board game coming, I called Adrenaline from CGE. I didn't know anything about it. I wanted that proper first-person shooter where you're playing on a map and you're hiding and you're setting people up and you're laying mines and you're running around the corner trying to lure them in. All that, you know, I guess the older school death match rather than the constant frantic, everyone shooting everyone. So I haven't fallen in love with it. And I don't think it's the game's fault. The game looks like it does everything well. It's got great reports. We've been able to read the rule book. It all looks fine. I'm just still struggling with the hangover of wanting a different game. So I'm going to go trap. But you know what? I'm going to seek it out. I'm going to play it. And I'm kind of certain it's going to change my mind. And I'm quite looking forward to that. Right. Well, I look forward to you looking forward to it. I look forward to that. (laughs) Okay, moving on. My next game I want to bring to your attention is Vikings on Board. This is from Blue Orange, designed by Catherine Dumas and Charles Chevalier, and also Pascal Plemon. Don't forget Pascal. It plays two to four (laughs) players, and it comes in at about €40. This is a worker placement game where players are vikings looking to gather supplies and trade them basically players are looking to control boats setting sail and are even taking bets on who will control each of those boats they can manipulate the market for goods and you will be constantly altering the power balance in those boats and even the makeup of the ships by switching portions of the ships around to try and get dominance. At the end of the game, you're going to see how many points you've obtained from selling the goods, manipulating the market, and making bets on who is going to gain dominance. And that's Vikings on board, Ronan. What were your first thoughts on this? So I do really like the work placement thing. So you've got that row of places you can go to and each person activates one. And what you do is they resolve from left to right. And then the next round, you start at the beginning of that row. And wherever you choose, the first person chooses, they can go anywhere in the row. And next time it's going to resolve left to right again. So it affects turn order as well as the actions you want. And that I think is a really good idea. There's lots of good ideas in this game. I really like the gambling tokens. I don't know how you feel about them, but I like the fact Mm. that even when you're locked out of an area, you've still got the chance to earn points. But my my issue with the gambling tokens is they're actually quite powerful. If you manage to land all of your gambling tokens in the game, that's, that's almost as good as getting four or five goods. I also think that they kind of open up you to sabotage. Because if you've gambled on something, that just gives me another target on there to go, well, now I definitely don't want that colour to win. I guess it's got that thing of, I might put my one gambling token down on that boat, on you, Sean, just to make sure everyone else makes sure you don't win. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's also a zero gambling token as well. So he's kind of hedging your bets and maybe trying to get someone to do that and sneaking in your four somewhere else but i I like the thought that they've they've put something in so that the person sailing the boat doesn't just get everything and there is one of my main issues with this ronan 
You've got lots of areas where you're swapping the boats around and you're adding a bit from that boat, taking a bit from this boat, putting what, extra bits onto that one, trying to get dominance, and you're all vying, and it's, it's going to be happening over a massive row of boats. One person sails each round. So you've got all of that, and one person sails a boat. It just seems like it's all coming down to... And, oh, okay. That person's taken that, so nobody else is going to score anything this round. Yeah, I'm going to roll that into lots of other issues with it and say... What I don't feel like I have any control over what's going on. Yeah, because looking at it, I'm like, so much can be swapped around. One person gets to decide which boat goes. It all seems like a lot of fuss for nothing. If I'm going to be honest with you, is that yeah? I like a screwy game, but this is crazy. But you're screwing with each other, but then it all comes to naught for most of all that. Yeah, exactly, and each action doesn't matter. Surely the first action you do is just reserve that sailboat action for yourself. You'd think. It does mean you're last in choosing you know, your worker next turn. True. But it's got to be the most powerful action, hasn't it? It has to be. It just seems odd. And I know the boats will slowly condense and there'll be fewer boats each round as the boats start to sail and there'll be, there'll be less choice for each person than on what boat to manipulate and mess around with and it might actually come down to a point where actually that sail action actually may mean something because it'll be one of two or three boats i don't know but it just doesn't seem like it's going to work as a game oh that's a bit harsh <laughs> it's not work as a game there's a lot going on in this game at the end of it one boat sails i just I can't get my head around that. Why, why not have two or three of those things happening it just doesn't bless you sense. you sound worried about this are you all right <laughs> confused and frustrated oh, you're all right you'll be okay i've got one last question for you how is it what vikings i don't what are we just putting vikings on everything what is yeah. i don't remember vikings chopping up bits of boats and swapping them around pimp my <laughs> longboat i don't what I don't remember different clans all sharing the same boat and then having a fight to see who dominates that boat by splitting them in half not that I can remember. No. But there you go. Anyway. No. Look, mate, uh, it, total lack of control in the game. This is not my sort of game whatsoever. If I thought adrenaline was too chaotic, this is it to the nth degree. No. Trap. Vikings on board. Yeah, I'm very worried about this one. I just don't see how You sound it's worried. Work. It's I okay. Do. I do. I know. I think I need a cuddle. <laughs> <laughs> I need a hug. Yeah, it's a trap. I just can't see how it's going to work at all. Uh, very unusual for Blue Orange. Always like their games generally. So, uh, yeah, trap. That is Vikings on board. Yes, it is. We're going to move on to a Queen Games game. This is Armageddon. It's for three to four players. It takes around 90 minutes. It's designed by David Thompson, who's got a rake of games coming out this year, Star Jewel, Allegiance, and Castle Itter. It is also designed by Chris Marling, who has been on the podcast before, a friend of ours. He designed AEG's Empire Engine, and he has Pioneer Days coming out next year, which is kind of like... Oregon Trail sort of a game. I think you're going to be hearing more about that next year. So, typical Queen Games. There's absolutely nothing available about this game. Less than three weeks to go to Essen. 
as you know, we know Chris has been on the show, so we have got a little bit of an inside scoop with regards to at least details from the game he sent to them, which they have amended. So we will tell you how it plays. This might be one of the few places you can get any information about Armageddon, so there you go. Chris has proved to be useful for once in his live show, and how did that work? Yeah, yeah. Again, I was worried by that, Rona. I was worried. I know. <laughs> What's he planning? <laughs> <laughs> so the theme of the game is you're trying to develop a town in a post-apocalyptic scenario. And while you're trying to do that and build up some buildings and, and generate some actions, you're trying to fight off marauders and collect relics of the previous technology, like cars and things like that. The way you do it is you have a group of survivors, and these are different coloured meeples, and the different colours of meeples give them different abilities. And basically a different ability is to trigger the buildings that you put into your town as you build it up. In each round, you're going to be doing two bids with meeples and you're going to be holding the rest back to operate your town. You're bidding for two different things. So what is the first player decides how many meeples they want to put into uh, on a track as they are. I'm bidding four meeples. It doesn't matter what colour those ones are. Next person says, yeah, sure, I'll go five, I'll go one, I'll go two, whatever. Whoever's bid the most meeples gets first dibs on to start with buildings which are going to add to your town give you powers they also can provide you with shelter because you're going to have to shelter your meeples and we'll get onto that at the end of the round also there are relics and relics have got end game basically set scoring so if i collect four cars it might be worth a certain amount of points two flamethrowers whatever it may be it's, it's all you know typical set collection they'll tell you how many points they're each worth at the bottom of the card the other thing you get with relics are meeples in different colours, and they include the possibility of having bad meeples, which are called marauders. And again, we'll get to talk about that. Your leftover meeples are then, like I say, going to trigger your buildings. You take your winnings that you've got, your building and your and your relic, and then you place your meeples on your towns. And you're going to do those to possibly go out looking for more relics and scrap heats and stuff to repair any damage that's been done to your towns, to maybe score some VPs, also to shoot at marauders now i keep talking about marauders you can take them you've got a marauder track for each individual town and marauders you haven't dealt with during the course of the round are now going to do damage and they're going to damage your buildings builders become inoperable when they're damaged if they take two damage they collapse and you're no longer be able to use them obviously the end of the round you look at how much total shelter you've got from your buildings if you have any meeples above that total in your town they go away and they convert into marauders they join you on the other side and you're giving yourself a long-term headache so it's something you need to be aware of believe it plays over seven rounds not exactly sure at the end you're going to score points for the cards you've collected you're going to lose points for damage and marauders you still got bothering you your relics are going to score you points sean i think we did well to get that much information to be honest with you given that when you go to the board game geek page for armageddon it's almost blank thoughts on armageddon okay well you've led me into that point ronan so let's go from there yeah i don't understand the marketing of some of these big companies and it's not just queen z-man do it a lot you've got the world's biggest game fair if or second best if you listen to people from gen con and were we three weeks away Still nothing out about it. I think they're doing a disservice to the game itself, which sounds really interesting, to Chris and David, to the people who want to know more about this game, the fans of Queen Games. You're just doing everyone a disservice by not giving the information in plenty of time for this. It's going to be a rush job again. It'll be in the last minute. Some people won't have time to fully research this game, and I just hope, for, for Chris's sake... 
that it makes a big enough bang at the fair that people oh, don't Wouldn't it be funnier away. that it, it was a disaster and it ended up in bargain bins everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> that would at least be funnier. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Chris. I, I, I have no control over him. And the other thing that's really surprising, Sean, as to why there's no artwork out is the artwork they've done for it is amazing. We've got a bit of a sneak preview from Chris, as you said, and he's shown us some of those little snippets of artwork. Yeah, absolutely stunning. Kind of game that makes me turn my head. Absolutely beautiful looking game with some of those post-apocalyptic scenes looking really, really thematic. For sure. And, and it kind of drew me in as well. The actual mechanisms, the auction looks really interesting. The fact you've got to balance the town development. One concern, 90 minutes, is it a little bit long for the wait? Because you're just doing 14 auctions and then running your town quickly. You know, hopefully, maybe it'll play a little bit shorter than that. It doesn't look like it all actually played to that length. And yeah, what I like about Ronan is that sort of balance of building your tableau and fending off the marauders and sort of defending what you've built almost. There's that thematic penalty for not housing your survivors in that they have no choice but to become marauders themselves. You're not going to lose, just lose points. So I think everything he's done in this game or they've done in this game it all has a thematic twist to it as well, and I like the look of that. I'm, I'm pretty sure David did all the good bits. Yeah, well, obviously, obviously. Right. It's probably a hindrance. As much as I, I'm annoyed by Queen for not putting this out there, I do think this looks like a really interesting game. I am going to say it's a treasure, and i will certainly seeking out Mr. Marling for a playthrough. Yeah, I think it'll be a treasure too. <laughs> Wish it wasn't. <laughs> it does look good. And like I said, I think it's going to catch people's eye at the fair because of that fantastic artwork. I think it's going to be one of those that people are unaware of going in, unfortunately, apart from obviously our listeners. But coming out, I think it's going to grow some buzz. Very good. Right. From a not-so-legendary inventor to a legendary inventor. <laughs> <laughs> by Bombix, uh, designed by Frederic Henri. Playing two to five players. What is it? Well, players are going to assemble a team of famous inventors from history. And they're going to invent a number of yet-to-be-realized inventions. You're going to start simple with things like fire and you're going to move through the history of invention over three ages. Players can activate one inventor who is going to add cubes to an invention matching the needs of that invention and limited to the knowledge of that inventor in the four areas. Now, they are mathematics, mechanics, physics, and I think chemistry. These are all upgradable as well. On completion, the player placing the most cubes on the invention will get the first choice of the rewards on offer. And then on top of that, each inventor has got personal goals to achieve. When you do get an invention, the rewards are things that are going to help you through the game or score your points. It's coming in at about €15, Euro, I believe, for the spiel. What are your thoughts, Ronan? Well, it looks pretty. They've, you know, as you expect from Bombix, you can definitely see the timelines influence from the designer and what they've done with the different cards, the different inventions, and the very look of the game. But thematically, really, it's a load of nonsense, sure. 
Ah, uh, yeah, th- thematically it doesn't really hold water, but it's, I mean, it's a very quick game. Einstein designing a handcart. That would be a wonderful handcart. Or would in it? 3, or would it? Would be <laughs> in 3000 BC. <laughs> no, it doesn't hold water at all thematically, but I think for a simple, quick game, it looks like it's going to give you actually some choices. I don't know. Light area majority on those cars gets some scoring. A bit of development of your scientists. You, you get rewarded if you develop them in certain ways because they can get more powerful. But it just doesn't string together for me. I can't really see why this game exists. It's like a prototype, really, that they haven't quite found a theme for. Oh, no, not at all. I don't. I honestly, I'm surprised. I, honestly, I think it's just. What well, you said like, in terms of. I don't mean the looks of it. No, it no, looks no, lovely. No, no, I know you mean. But it, it doesn't. It's nonsensical. It looks like a simple little engine builder. A simple engine builder that's been done a million times before, with a theme that doesn't make any sense. With upgradable scientists and yeah, that make any sense. And I think what well, Einstein's going to learn more about something because he built a handcart in three thousand BC. Einstein's going to be constantly learning to improve himself in different areas. Sure, by by designing a handcart. It's usually me that gets stuck on the theme. Because there's nothing new, and thematically it makes no sense. So it has nothing. It's just a nothing game. I think it's going to get forgotten. I think you've gone treasure, have you? Treasure inventors trap out of lovely-looking utter blandness. I'm going to say it's a treasure because I think that it is a simple little engine building game. I like the thought we're playing with the real inventors, even if they're not inventing things that they would have invented. I do think it looks absolutely beautiful. I think gameplay will slowly increase and the the rewards on the cards are what's going to sort of turn it from just a normal area control thing to someone building their engine in different ways. Less legendary inventors. I'm going to just put in a note in my mobile phone to mention it to you on air in 18 months and see if you remember anything about it. So, moving onwards and upwards with our second half a dozen games for you to consider. And we're going to come in with an expansion this time. This is Pandemic the Cure Experimental Medications from Z-Man Games. Matt Leacock, expansion obviously to the base game of Pandemic the Cure. So, we know Z-Man was owned by uh, Philosophia, F2Z. We know that they've been bought by Asmodee North America. Surprise, surprise, as in everything. And they'd recently bought plaid hats. So they've been rolled up. and They've got big changes going on in their business. That's fine. Now, please explain, Sean, why there's no information about an expansion to a well-known game out yet. Yeah, a well-known game. Like, it's pretty obscure. No one's really heard of it. So it's obviously going to be on the back burner. It's not going to make them any money at all. People won't be excited about it. Why are they doing Oh, I'm banging this drum again. We've contacted them direct because there's nothing out about it. And the email we got back was, what would you like to know? Anything! <laughs> and he sung it to them in that exact I way. Did, I just sent them a little, anything, please! Come on! 
What is going on? Stupid. And it's the bigger companies that are more likely to do it. Anyway, what do we know? It introduces a fifth virus. There are hot zones where you've got more problems. There are a rake of new roles, eight of them. And there's some kind of events at each outbreak stage when you're all those biohazards. That's it. Haven't got a rule book. Don't know any more. Really, I, I put this down on this because I, I was excited. I've played Pandemic the Cure more than 20 times. An expansion. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. <sighs> yeah. Oh, my notes are, it depends how it integrates with the rest of the game. And we don't know because we don't know anything about it. Will it make the game too hard? Because Phantom of the Cure is not an easy game. So, but we don't know because we don't know anything about it. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. So, Ronan, I'm going to have to say that it's a trap for me. Not just because the ridiculous lack of rules coming from a big company but also i i liked pandemic the cure but i wasn't a massive fan i certainly wasn't as big a fan as you were of it and i can sort of take or leave it so an expansion to it is a bit meh for me add lack of rules in there is a trap i hate myself sean <laughs> you're gonna say treasure aren't you i am the problem aren't i you are the problem because i let them get away with it because i want it because, like I say, over 20 games, we crack it out all the time. We've got the kind of non-gamer friends who love Pandemic the Cure. So, yeah, it's a treasure. But Z-Man, come on, man. Come on. Ah, bless them. Right, okay. So we're going to go on to a game where there is some information about it. And it's Age of Thieves from Galacta, designed by Slavomir Stepien and two to four players. Age of Thieves is a fantasy game of strategy and adventure where players are master thieves looking to commit a daring burglary. Players are going to use unique abilities, action cards, potions and even devices and everything is deployed using available action points which will change throughout the game depending on how well you're doing. The thieves need to steal their items and get out of the city. And there will be a big bunch of city guards, and these city guards will be generally led by event cards, with their awareness of the thieves arising as the game goes on. The main mechanism in this game is where players are going to simultaneously choose their actions for each round, and you're going to set it up behind your player screens, then do the reveal, and it's like a pre-programmed thing, you, you will do your actions. It looks incredibly thematic, Ronan. How did you feel about Age of Thieves? Firstly, it does look thematic and it looks great. I love the artwork and it's a great theme. It's bringing to mind the Thief computer games or we referenced it last episode, those fighting fantasy books. The idea that you are this thief sneaking around a real active city. They've got those event cards going on. The guards will react to you, but kind of in a realistic way. So if you're within their sight, they'll move towards you as quick as they can. And the city itself is reacting to what you're doing. I theme surely looks to me nailed on, Sean. Exactly. When I first saw the picture even of this, it reminded me of that Thief computer game, which was a favourite of ours. Now, there are also tokens on the board, and when you interact with them, they're going to reveal hidden events. So that's another good thing for, in my money. The event cards can be good and bad, Ronan. So it's not just a complete slog, as some of these games tend to be just hitting you over the head with bad event after bad event, like we talked in like Castle Ravenloft, etc. But I think 
a lot of this game is going to depend on the AI of those guards and the balance between the random events. It does give me the idea that you're going to have to roll the blows a little bit. And that if I happen to trip across someone and I can slit their pouch open and steal their gold, but you walk into, I don't know, the gladiator from the pits and he beats you up, well, you've had some bad luck and I've had some good luck. How much that is swingy, yes, we're waiting to see. But we'll wait to see really about all of the mechanisms because we don't know that much about it. Galacta are putting out updates all the time on their websites, but they're kind of story updates if you like as opposed to kind of factual ones we haven't seen a rule book yet but more information is coming out all the time every time i see an update i'm excited about it i like that as well as those events you get like fire breaking out in the city you can try and encounter each other and backstab each other i feel like it will be swingy but i feel like that is kind of part of it you are supposed to be fragile you are a thief it's not Age of Warriors, it's Age of Thieves. You're picking your own route as well, so I'm not sure exactly how much information is readily available to you when picking that route, but I would imagine you have some idea what you're going to encounter along those routes, and you've got that central target. The only thing about that for me is that the board, and there are pictures of the board and all the components, uh, the board looks really, really busy, and from afar, it looked quite difficult to pick out routes on it, Ronan. The, the routes kind of blend into the actual graphics behind the routes, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm guessing maybe you move in blocks as opposed to, like, all the individual roads are quite higgledy-piggledy. One of the details we don't quite know yet. I, I will throw in, Sean, what I really like is that there's an alarm phase. So when things escalate, when there's a certain amount of stuff stolen, or you get that central gem, it goes into this phase and you've got five rounds to get out of the city and the danger all escalates and suddenly you have much more competent guards come in and they will all try and congregate on where the issue is going on. And that sense of a finale gives me a lot of hope for Age of Thieves. For sure, Ronan. So I'm, I'm sensing good things. Have we got a cheeky treasure coming our way from you? Yeah, treasure. Age of Thieves. For me too. If if they pull it all together, and still there's always going to be some questions in it, and it's quite a big project getting the AI of those guys right, getting the route planning just right, getting the the luck balance in there. But if they pull all of that together, I think it could be absolutely fantastic. Not just good, fantastic. So with that in mind, I'm going to say it's a treasure. So brace yourselves. We're going to head into a little bit of a deeper rules explanation again. This time for Great Western Trail. It's coming from Stronghold and Pegasus Games. It's for two to four players, rocking in two to two and a half hours play length. The designer is Alexander Fister. That's got lots of people very excited. He designed Mombasa, Isle of Sky, Broom Service, Oh My Goods, Port Royal, and many more. This one is you're a rancher and you can be driving your herd of cattle from Texas across the board to Kansas City to sell them. You'll be doing this repeatedly. On the map, you have a branching trail, which you're going to move along, and each player has got one cowboy, which represents the location of their herd on the map. On each turn, you take that one cowboy and you move it a number of spaces along. Now, how far you can move is limited at the beginning. You can upgrade it. You can upgrade almost anything on your own personal player board within this game. As you go along, you're going to land on basically one of two or three spaces. It's going to be a building you've built or a neutral building, and that counts as really as an action space. There's lots of places you can do these kind of generic actions you've got, but each building's got its own actions you can do. You start with seven neutral ones on the board, and and everyone can build their own. The other thing is if you skip across other people's buildings, you have to hand them some money as you go to, to pay for using the facilities or whatever it may be. 
if you land on other people's buildings or a TP space or a hazard, you just get to do one of these generic kind of actions that comes from your own player board, which you can upgrade a little bit, but it's not going to be as good as using those buildings. Eventually, every time you get to the end of the trail, after a few turns, you're going to get to Kansas. And the first thing you go do when you get to Kansas is you add TPs, which are trading posts, if you like, to the trail. You can add hazards to the trail to make it more expensive for people to go down certain routes, certain branches. And you're going to add workers into the job market to make them more available. There are three different types of workers, and I will explain what they all do. They're not workers to place on the board. They're tokens which you put on your player mat, and they'll help you do certain actions. Your only thing on the board is that cowboy as you jump along, which you can move along. When you're at Kansas, after you've added some things, it's part of the mechanisms that's going to drive the game onwards, you get to sell your hand of cattle. So you start off with a deck. Everyone has the same deck. You start with a hand of four cattle, and each individual type of breed, there's about eight of them in the game. They've got slightly varying costs from two for the lowest one to six to the highest one. You sell them for whatever they're worth, but only one of each type, as I said, and you get that money in. You also are then going to have to deliver cattle, and basically there's a track around the outside. You've got a disc, and there's a number of cities, and you put your disc in whichever city you've decided to sell to. Putting the disc in both upgrades your player board to make certain things available to you, increase your hand size, allows you to move further, whatever it may be. But also, you're going to get maybe some points from doing that or or maybe a little bonus action. But they are a certain distance away, those cities, and you've got a train engine. And the further you've moved the train engine along this track, the less it's going to cost you to deliver to further away cities, which are going to get you more points. Also, if you get that engine to stop at certain stations, you can upgrade them, get a power, get a station master. Lots of little upgrades and things you can do to make your own tableau individual. Once you've done that in Kansas, your cowboy hands back again to the beginning of the trail. And you're going to go along this ever-changing trail with buildings and hazards and TBs until you get to Kansas again and repeat the process on and on through the game. They reckon five to seven times each game. Every time you go to the beginning, you draw four cards from your deck again, maybe more again if you've upgraded. I'm going to pull you back quickly to those workers. The workers are cowboys, engineers and craftsmen. The cowboys, when you visit buildings, you're going to be able to visit the cattle market, which is a, a laid out tableau of cattle down the bottom of the board. And the more cowboys you have, the more cattle buying options you have when you go there. So they help with that. Engineers, whenever you trigger an action that moves your train, your engine, the more engineers you have, the more spaces that will move. Your craftsmen, I said you build buildings and it's only your own buildings or neutral buildings you can trigger. Everyone has a set of their own 10 buildings and they choose which of those they build. They're double-sided, those 10 buildings, but you all are going to use the same set in a particular game, although there's some varieties you can tell. Anyway, you need craftsmen to build buildings. In the buildings, you'll be able to buy and sell cattle, so you don't have to get to Kansas to sell cattle. Sometimes you can sell them on the way, which will help you kind of thin out your hand a little bit, I guess. You can hire more workers. You can build more buildings. You can move that engine. You can trade at TPs, and when you've done that, that'll score you points at the end of the game. There's a job market, and every time you add workers to this job market, like I said, you can hire them from buildings. It pushes down a marker. When that marker jumps off the end of the board, everyone's going to have one final round. And at the end of the game, there are 11 different victory point categories you're going to score in. They include having better cattle in your deck, building buildings, doing objective cards, which I didn't even talk about. They can give you a bonus action during the game. If you take the bonus action, they can give you negative VP if you don't fulfill that objective. However, if they're just on your deck, all they'll do is you can choose to score them at the end of the game. For having money, for having workers, everything. Everything I've talked about and more, you do in Great Western Trail 
will somehow score you points. That is a quick rules overview. Sean, it's not going to be a quick game, though. But what are your thoughts on Great Western Trail? Well, Ronan, <laughs> we always set out to make these things uh, really quick with uh, not much intro because we haven't played the game. And sometimes I think you'll admit you go into rules mode and you start bashing out the rules. On this one, I forgive you. Because you. there is a lot of moving parts in this game. You've got the customization of the board. You've got the route building aspect. There's an economic engine in there. There's trade. Ah, there's a lot going on, Ronan. There is. So good, crunchy Euro, sure. <laughs> it is a moving parts Euro where there are lots and lots of things you're going to attempt to do. I think maybe you're less restricted than in the similar game, I would say, in terms of Depp, Lorenzo or Magnifico, we spoke about at the beginning of the episode. That felt like you're a little bit more restricted to me in that you have to go provinces and buildings to do something. This seems kind of wider open. It yeah. does feel quite Feldian. A bit point salady. Does feel point salady. I was really skeptical about the theme, and yet the theme definitely helped me make sense of the rules when I was writing that rule summary. And when I'm talking about things, I say cowboys get you more cattle, engineers move your train, craftsmen build your buildings. It does do what you know you can't expect a Euro theme to do is tie those complicated rules together and help them make sense. It does. It all it all makes sense. I think the theme is very well realised. You're out on the open road. You've got those choices to make on the open road now do you think ap is going to be a, an issue with this game it seems to me it will be i don't think so in that it's done very well to limit your choices now there are branching routes you can go down and i think setting up people to have to go past your buildings is very much be part of this taking hazards and loading up floods and rock falls and stuff so that you go look you have to come via my buildings down pay for me so there's a little bit of choice there but you can only move one cowboy is yours, and you can only move it a limited number of spaces depending on how far you've upgraded it. So your choices are going to be down to one, two, three, or four spaces. When you get to a space, each individual action does seem fairly straightforward. I'll say possibly the building of the buildings, which one you choose, is going to be the most difficult. So there's going to be some thickness in there, but you expect that with a longer euro. But I like how much he's limited. You're not choosing 10 workers and put them in loads of different places. You're choosing one worker, one of four spaces. That's how far he can go. In a funny way, it reminds me a bit of patchwork. <laughs> it doesn't matter so much what's further around the ring. You can only choose from those next three. Whatever else you're trying to do, that's your choice. Of course, there's more, but... Yeah, I, but I think the beauty of this one is that you're going to be able to really plan ahead what you want to do in your next, your second, third, fourth move ahead and how quickly you want to get to Kansas, what cattle you're going to pick up and what you're going to sell along the way, how you're going to generate the income to do that. And I think you're almost planning two, three steps ahead. Now, I think once someone's got that into their mind, right, that's my plan then that might take some time to do. And also, if something interferes with that, that's when I think maybe the AP might pop in. I'm not sure there's that much interference that can be done. It does feel like quite solitary. There's mm. a bit of denial in that you can take cattle out of the market. Even if you're on a space, someone else can come and use that same space as you. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose, yeah. A little bit on the engine mm. track, like the first person gets a station master, but not much. I think... There's not that much messing, so it's going to be more one of those, this is my plan, now I move along and do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Do it. But, but what your plan is, 
is what's most important. In fact, that's probably my biggest concern about it, is that it does look very solitaire. Yeah, you're quite right. It's a big beast to comprehend. It's going to be a big beast to play. I think that you probably want to play with players of a similar standard to yourself in both gaming and in this game. So you probably want to start your journey together for at least a little while with this one. But I'm going to say Treasure, although I'm not sure myself that I'm going to pick it up because I don't know. Oh, no, 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 that's the standard now. If you don't think you're going to pick it up, you have to make it a trap. No, no. It's in the rules now. No, I can get you to pick it up and then I can play it. (laughs) Well, that's okay because it's a treasure and I am going to pick it up. Right, we're going into the arrival from Games Up, designed by Martin Wallace, playing two to four players. Apologies, my explanation for this is more of a stream of consciousness. Go for it. Players in this game are Celtic tribal leaders trying to become the dominant clan in the area, while at the same time fighting back demon-like creatures. The game takes place on a central board depicting a map in which you are trying to dominate areas and expand your clan. Each phase goes as so. You have your earning phase, which you are going to choose cards, and more importantly, you're going to choose an area on the card. The top area tends to have more resources, but will have more corruption. Anyone who's familiar with Martin Wallace games knows that he likes a bit of corruption. The lower ones will have slightly less resources or not quite as good resources, but there'll be less corruption and so on. So that's your first choice. Then you're going to take your your earnings and your resources, which come in the form of fame, buildings, swords and shields. I'll tell you what they do in a minute. And then you're going to take any corruption you have and any demons that you have attracted and take any tactic cards that you've earned. So your actions, you can build your fortifications. This is going to increase your area control and where the buildings come into. You can place your shields that you've earned, and your shields are going to be used to defend areas. You have to spread your demons, and you're going to add demons to areas around your your controlled areas. And you can repel those demons. This is where the swords come in, and these are just basically going to gain you fame for every time you repel a demon. At the end of the game, if the demons hold as much or equal area to all players... The player with the least corruption is going to win the game. On the flip side, if the players hold the most land in the game over the demons, the player with the most fame is going to win. The fame is gained by area control, demons defeated and resources held. So it is a double win condition that is dependent on how well the demons have done in the game. Ronan, this looks really striking from the off. Lee bad. Oh my god, it looks boring. Like not even getting into the game. It is the most dull, bland. Looks like someone's designing it on a spectrum. <laughs> As in the old computer. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> a ZX spectrum. <laughs> you know, it was a funny game to reprint to start with, right? Mordred, a poorly received, light Martin Wallace dice roller. Who wants to reprint that? Then you go reprint it, and you make it look shocking. The tiles are horrible. The board is horrible. The rule book is horrible. It just looks terrible. Yeah, Ronan, Ronan probably would have picked up that 
I kind of went into drone mode doing the explanations for this one because it's just I was thinking about the board, I was thinking about the game, I was thinking about the really difficult rule book, and yeah, it, it just screams this is going to be a boring experience. Well, Joe, I'm really annoyed about your rules explanation. Go on. You didn't read out the words that they left in German in the rule book. <laughs> Every time we find rule books with a bit of non-translation in there, it's the biggest red flag before Essen, and mm-hmm. you didn't even read them out. Come on, Sean. It's like Carnival Zombie all over again in its page of Italian. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> At least that's getting a reprint, I suppose. That was a good game, actually. Right. People moaned about the dice rolls in the original, that they were too random, you get hammered and stuff. They have changed that to that interesting draw four cards, block two channels, and then whatever channels left you get to take. So clearly they've done something to try and sort of improve it, or Martin Wallace has. The dual endgame condition actually does seem interesting. If you push too hard and take the top channel of those cards every time, and you increase how the bad guys are controlling the map, you're going to hand it to those who have been cautious. The whole balance of that, I think, can be interesting. So I think they've thought about it, and they've improved it a bit, and they'd need to, because Mordred did not get a good reception. But who's going to get past the looks? to see if they've changed a not very good game enough to turn it into a good game. What it feels like to me is that they've just made it even more Martin wallace if you know what I mean. Oh, I don't know, mate. Did you look at that original board? It was supposed to be like a King Arthur theme. Right. And when you roll to see what you got, it, you know in Brass, we've got those tables with like pound signs or big pound signs. Yeah. In this King Arthur game, <laughs> how much you got had pound signs. Pound sterling signs on how much money you receive for your dice roll. Eh? Right. <laughs> what, are gold coins or something? No, pounds. What? <laughs> But for me, it just it just all of a sudden became just like a London or something like that. Just those corruption coming in and the yeah. whole look of it. So if, if I'm going to go down the Martin Wallace route, I'll go back to London or even go and find Ankh-Morpork or something like that, where it's actually quite a nicely themed game. And it Maybe hit zero, Sean. Maybe hit zero. So there's, there's a fun Martin Wallace game. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to bash on Martin Wallace because I, I enjoy a lot of his games but I think maybe someone's just bought the rights to this and it seems like they haven't even really consulted with him maybe on the, <laughs> they drunk? but yeah <laughs> uh, the I arrival. know which way it's going to go Ronan trap the arrival a trap okay do you know Sean when I dream what do you dream with Ronan um, I don't know I have to close my eyes and everyone else has to tell me <laughs> This is When I Dream from Draw Lab. It's 30-minute game, four to ten people. So kind of a party game. This is from Chris Darsaklis, and this is his first published design, although he's also designed something called Coal City. I don't know much about that. Okay, we don't want to harp on about too much. No rules available, less than three weeks till Spiel starts. But let's move on. Tart. Tart. Each round, one player puts on an eye mask, and they are the dreamer. Everyone else takes on a role of either a good spirit, a bad spirit, or a wily trickster spirit. They then draw a card with artwork on it and a couple of words, and that represents what the person with the eye mask on is dreaming about. Then as a group, they're each going to give one word clues to the dreamer as to what their dream is about. And it's something pretty simple, although I know they've kind of upgraded the artwork. You've got lovely artwork from Vincent Dutray and another artist I've forgotten, I'm sorry, but nice beautiful artwork on there but anyway 
you give one word clue. The good spirits are trying to help the dreamer guess what their dream is accurately. The bad spirits are trying to put the dreamer off on their guess, but not be so obvious as they can be outed as bad spirits. The tricksters want the total number of successes and fails to balance over the course of the whole game. So they are going to be switching backwards and forwards, trying to keep it as even as possible. So if you've got lots of successes in a row, they're then going to start acting like bad spirits. But if there's lots of failures in a row, they're going to act like good spirits. Sounds good to me. The dreamer then has to guess the dream at the end. There is some way of outing the bad spirits. I don't know what it is. I can't be more specific because there's no rule book. Sean. When I first looked at this one, Ronan, I was like, what the hell has he got me looking at? This sounds ridiculous. When I delved a little bit deeper, it actually started to make a bit of sense. I think with the new card art, though, they've gone down the Dixit route almost. Is it immediately obvious what everything's about? No. <laughs> that's, that's one of the concerns. I'm like, <laughs> right, so one person might be going for this picture on the card and the other person might be describing the other picture. And they might be both good. What he said was, right, so he gave an example that in the very simple artwork he had, he got a picture of a boar and just the clip art he'd taken, it happened to have a yellow hat on. So when people were giving clues, they kept talking about the yellow hat rather than the boar. So he's like, so we have to simplify it. And then the artwork's come out and it's, it's like a Dixie card. There's like 10 different ideas on there. And I'm thinking, yeah. so How's that gonna a work? pig wearing a hat was too complicated. But this crazy <laughs> ass castle in the clouds with people flying around it and some wind and stuff isn't. What? Yeah, I think maybe someone will have to point to the thing that they're going to start talking about. and then I think there's going to be two words on the cards. I guess that's what the dreamer is trying to guess, one of those two words. And again, that is just a guess because we haven't got the rules. Also, at the end of the game, the dreamer has to recite the dream. I just thought that was a bit of a step too much and that will actually bog the game down. Just keep it simple. Everyone having fun, people trying to mess other people up, being subtle. I'm going to jump straight in, Ronan. I think it's a treasure. This is hard for me. I think because it's going to be quite group dependent, because people are going to have that performance pressure of having to come up with the right word and hide if they're good or bad or a trickster. It seems a little fragile. I'm not sure it's going to work often enough for me. So I'm actually going trap on my own game here. But it does seem interesting. I need some clarification before I can really believe in it, and I don't have it. Fair enough. Okay, last game of this episode, Ronan, and we are we're coming home. We're coming to London, Dread. <laughs> yes, Dread. It is London, Dread. There you go. From Grey Fox Games, Oscar Johansson, two to four players. This is a co-op game set in Victorian London with players acting as investigators trying to uncover a series of plots en route to a grand finale. This is a story-driven game where players will initially have 12 minutes to decide how each of them will pre-program their moves for the upcoming round. You've got a a clock, which is an interesting prop to have in in the game. You set the face of the clock in where where you're going to go. So if you're going somewhere at 7 o'clock, you will put what your action is going to be in the 7 o'clock space. And that's the way it will go. And then you will go through... Surely, Mr. Trick, it should be called What's the Time, Mr. Jack? That'd be rubbish. Well, in London, dread. 
I like London Dread. Dread. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> and then after the 12 minute timer, you will go through the clock hour by hour and everyone will do their actions. Players are going to be looking to solve clues, move the plot forward by matching symbols from either the investigators themselves or you can add items that they are carrying, which will also hold those same symbols. With the plots, there is also a little bit of dice rolling involved, and it's not just a simple, I have enough symbols, therefore I complete it. You actually have a dice roll involved. Ronan, London Dread, also comes with an app for the timer purposes, or you can just time it yourself. You know when I started learning about this game? Mm. I started picturing Sean Osmosis. As you tore yourself in half to, of the the real time aspect, but the solving crimes in Victorian London aspect. It's not a real time dice roller, but real time. I can feel you getting sweating bullets I don't already. Mind real time. It's the real time dice rolling. It's the specific dice rolling. I hate. You don't like any real time games. Come on, get out of here. I like XCOM. Do you? Yes, I like XCOM. I own it and I really enjoy it. Okay, all right. In which case, I'll take back my osmosis joke. So, we're playing a very slow version of Space Alert, where we've got 12 minutes to decide what we're doing. You can change that. They have said you can you can bump it up to whatever you want. 10, 8, 6 minutes. It's very slow. I don't think it will be. I think when you're playing this game, it won't be slow at all. Because you're all going to be discussing what what each of you want to do and not getting involved in each other's path. 12 minutes! Yeah, 12 minutes has been much. I think we will probably knock it down to 10 to start with and 8 probably after a couple of games. Or just have no timer at all. Okay. I hate the presentation. I think the initial presentation, when the board's laid out with all the cards turned face down, it doesn't look great. I will give you that. I don't like the art. I don't like the standees. I like the art. Oh, no, I don't like the programming tiles. don't like any of it. It looks horrible to me. I like everything apart from the general look of the game when it's set up for, before you start. I like the I like the standees. They're not the best, the programming tiles, but they stand out from the crowd, so they're, they're functional. But, yeah, they don't look great. I'll give you that. Okay, okay. The actual encounters that you have, you're basically doing symbol matching. Yes. That doesn't seem very exciting. Not the most thematic uh, thing of the game, but I think for me... But not the most interesting. I don't mind that theme. It's like, well, you've got those symbols. That card there needs those symbols. You go there. Okay. Have we got 11 and a half more minutes to talk about this? You've got to turn the cards face up first, and that's part of the game. And So if you do turn them face up, I haven't got any of those symbols. Oh, if you turn that card up, you'd have nailed that, but, but I didn't. So... I'm not feeling the love for this, Ronan. I've got more. I like it. I think there's nice co-op levels with the timer. I think there's going to be tension with with the timer and trying to get to the right areas to uncover. You did. Things. You did hear it's a 12 minute timer, right? Which can be adjusted. <laughs> I think the the icon match. Yeah, that can seem a little bit abstract. Well, the, the other thing with the icon match though is right that you've got an investigation deck which you can burn through to get the symbols you need so if you turn out a card and you need to do that card and you don't have any symbols you have to start using deck right but you need that deck towards the end to be successful and it's almost like a, a push your luck thing in that the more you have less of that investigation deck the more likely you are to win the game at the end i have a feeling that at the beginning of the hour and a half or whatever i could hammer that 
because I have to win this card. And then we know, do you know what? We've hammered that deck. We're not going to win. Hmm. I'm not sure. Only four missions? Yeah, but I think the, the setup is completely different. You don't know where things are. He's... Yeah, so you're just finding the same cards, but they're in different places. And there's a story aspect to it, and the plot, and you read out bits of the plot, or the app reads out bits of the plot, but there's only four of them. So once I've found out what plot point one is of mission one, I know what the plot point is, and two, and three, and four, and then eventually five. Four missions? It's a little bit light, I'll, I'll say that. My biggest disappointment for this one, Ronan, is that it was billed as Arkham Horror in London. And Arkham Horror in London, it ain't. It's not that at all. It's much more abstract. Yes, I think they've tried to crowbar some theme in with the app and the reading of the plot lines. I think there is an interesting element to it in terms of working out where everybody's going to go and making sure you get the right person to do the right tasks. But uh, yeah, I think I agree with you, Ronan. When it comes down to it, it's quite abstract and it's fairly definitive what you're going to be able to do and what you're not going to be able to do apart from those plot lines where there's a drama with the dice roll. But yeah, I kind of know where you're going with it. Yeah, mate. Do you remember a couple of episodes back we kept the homing beacon boulder trap that follows us around and kept punching <laughs> us? That, that is the analogy for this game. I had no expectations or knowledge about it going in. And I've looked at the video and read the rules and just gone, wow, that is a matter no way. I don't want to have anything to do with that game. It To me, it sounds awful. It's the hardest trap of the day. For me, before I'd done my proper research, it was 100% a treasure. I loved all the, the buzz coming out of Gen Con about this game. It just sounded fantastic. Fantastic. I did like the initial artwork I saw, but then when I started looking into it, it became a bit more abstract. I think any theme in there is completely just shoehorned in. Although, I am going to 100% play this game. I'm going to seek it out, I'm going to find it, I'm going to sit down, I even have to wait an hour to get onto a table with it. I'm going to play this game because I want it to work. At the moment, I don't think it's for me, so it's a very tentative trap. Okay, that's all of our games summed up for you. We're going to see you out next. There we have it, episode 70 is in the bag. It's our first Essen previews. We're going to be hitting you with at least two more in the coming days and weeks before Essen. Ronan, are you excited yet? I was, and then I realised how many traps I've just put in that episode. You were I've a miserable a... I really was, wasn't I? If it wasn't a two-hour Euro, I wasn't having it. You Do you know what? <laughs> I haven't looked at the next 12 games yet at all. I've been so busy, but... I'm hopeful, Sean, we're going to find more gems in here. I'm going to go for at least four and a half treasures next time. Oh, don't push it. Don't push it's it. It's gone crazy in here. Don't promise anything <laughs> you can't deliver. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I hope you're getting very excited. Don't forget, after these previews, we're going to have some live Essen coverage in the first couple of days. Sean's going to be there with his wife, Natalie. We're going to hear from the both of them. I can't go. I'm stuck at home. I'm very frustrated, but that's okay. Sean's doing the business for me. 
we're going to bring out shortly afterwards another summary of some of the games that we both have played by then and then the week after that another show of some of the new games we played so we're giving you full Essen coverage join us for it all this is the most exciting time of the year for gamers Absolutely, and I will be, as Rana said, in the Essen halls on the Thursday mainly. I'll be wearing my Game Pit t-shirt. Please come and say hello. I'll also be on the Dice Tower booth at 2 o'clock on the Thursday. I think it'll be with Z Garcia and a couple of other podcasters. So please come along and say hello if you are around then. And as always, leading in, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. They're there for fabulous podcasting about board games. If you wish to contact us, you can email us on thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com or you can pop along to our Board Game Geek Guild. We'd love to hear from people on either. If you wish to download our episodes, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. And we also have a Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter account, at Game Pit Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Music by E. Aaron.